Welcome to Healthy Enough, a podcast focusing on building wellness in kids with mental health challenges. I'm Dr. April Bowling, and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Jamie Slavitt. Together, we're harnessing research and realism to help parents of children with diverse mental health challenges understand how small exercise, nutrition, and sleep habits can lead to big improvements in their kids' mental and physical wellness. All right, so right off the bat, we need to apologize because there was a huge delay in between when we released uh, episode five, where we really queued up this episode, and now when we're releasing uh, episode six. Yeah, we've both been a little crazy. Yeah, we're both kind of chained to academic calendars, which means that the months of April and May are absolutely packed. And we knew that, but we were trying to be ambitious and get these out on schedule. It didn't quite happen. Plus, research doesn't fund itself, so we had a couple of giant grants that we had to get in. One of which is unfortunately still being finished, but at least we see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I think it's good for people to know that um, research doesn't fund itself. Uh, So in addition to doing fun things like this, we get to write a lot of grants um, to make sure that we can keep uh, learning about these issues and and pushing out what we learn. So all of that being said, we're sorry we left the issue of sleep hanging, but we're going to jump right back in today. Absolutely. So one of the things that we promised was some diagnosis specific and general sleep tips that might be able to move the dial in terms of improving your child or teen's sleep. So we're going to start with some general tips that apply for all ages and then drill down into some specific recommendations for teens and preteens. All right, let's do it. Okay. Tip number one is for everyone. If your child regularly has sleep terrors, sleepwalks, takes longer than an hour to fall asleep, or has sleep apnea, it's worth asking their doctor to refer them to a sleep specialist if they haven't seen one already. A lot of parents get used to the abnormal sleep habits of their kids, and they start to believe that they're normal. But even though some facets of sleep disruption are really common with certain diagnoses like autism, depression, and anxiety, really severe sleep disturbances need to be assessed by a sleep specialist. These doctors will study your child's sleep, examine their medications and sleeping conditions, and can make specific recommendations to help them sleep better. And those recommendations can be game changers. Yeah, we start with this tip because while it's really common um, for primary care physicians to refer kids to mental health specialists based on their diagnosis, it's a lot more rare for them to refer to sleep specialists unless parents specifically raise the issue of sleep and ask. This is especially true if you've already tried tackling sleep behaviors for a while and it isn't really making a difference. In that case, you should really insist on a referral. Um, If you don't know what some of those things are, like sleep terrors or sleep apnea, we're going to post some links on the podcast page so that you can take a look um, and see whether or not they apply to your child. That leads us to sleep Tip number two for everyone, taking the angst out of sleep. Yes, April, studies have shown time and time again that the more we worry about getting enough sleep, the more trouble we have falling asleep. That is 100% the case for me. Uh, So instead of focusing on sleep as the outcome of these behavior changes, like more sleep or better sleep, instead just kind of focus on the success of practicing the sleep hygiene behaviors. And when we talk about sleep hygiene behaviors, these are just the 
things that we do that we're going to talk about today that help you fall asleep better. For younger kids, that might mean like making a sticker chart that follows each time they follow the new bedtime routine. Um, or for teens, it might mean like more weekend screen time earned for each night they hit the sheets on time. But no matter what, the key is that you don't make it about the sleep. You make it about the behavioral change only. Obviously, that's easier said than done. Totally. And as a parent, um, you should actually consider keeping a sleep log for your child, right? So that you can map their sleep hygiene attempts to their sleep pattern. So how long they sleep and how well they sleep. And then even include some logging of their daytime functioning, um, just so you can kind of understand those patterns better. But don't make them focus on how much sleep they're getting each night. That's only going to make things worse. Yes. And we'll, and we'll talk more about data and sleep in a few minutes and, and how that can impact your understanding of your child's sleep. But universal tip number three is work with your child to make sure their sleeping environment is a good one. Yeah, I actually just did this recently with my son. Um, you know, we think about this a lot when kids are babies, but as they get older, we can get kind of out of touch with the sleeping conditions that they're in. And recently I kind of did a sleep audit of my son's room. And it turns out that because of some recent kind of construction in our neighborhood and changes to some traffic patterns, it had actually gotten really loud in his room and we didn't realize um, how that might impact his sleep. So we ended up putting in a white noise machine that does a great job covering over the noise um, and it's really helped him a lot. But one of the most important changes that we can make is actually to the light in the bedroom and making the bedroom as dark as possible. That can actually be really hard when kids require a nightlight. Um, so one of the things you can do is to try getting a dimmable uh, nightlight. These are um, on the market now and they're really helpful. You can slowly kind of reduce it over time until it's either minimal or completely eliminated. Blackout shades are also great. They're not um, feasible for everybody, but making sure that light from the windows uh, is, is um, eliminated as much as possible is important. Um, and don't forget the little sources of light, things like chargers and clocks. Those should be either removed while kids are sleeping or trying to fall asleep or actually covered for sleep. It's important to think about noise as well, April. For a lot of kids, a white noise machine can be helpful since it can be almost impossible to eliminate outside noise, especially when they're young and going to bed early. Just be careful to keep the noise machine somewhat quiet, around 50 decibels or less, because really loud white noise can be disruptive to sleep as well. It's a great point because when we gave Sam the white noise machine, he was cranking it up. Um, and for reference, 50 de decibels is like what your fridge sounds like when it kicks on or like what an electric toothbrush sounds like. And the kid had it cranked up, so we had to turn it down. But it's still really effective at covering, for example, traffic noises outside. Temperature matters as well, April. The optimal temperature for sleeping is about 65 degrees if you sleep under a blanket and wear pajamas. It will vary by person and what they like to sleep in. So try experimenting with the 60 to 67 degree range and see what works best for your child. And here's the really big hard sleep environment tip. Uh, no screens after bedtime, no TV in the bedroom, no laptop, no desktop, no tablet, no phone. 
when you say it that way, April, that can make it feel like a no-win battle for parents. It can be a huge source of contention for sure. Positive reinforcement here is huge. Try to structure the initial conversation about this with your kid as giving versus taking away. So like in exchange for parking their laptop and phone in the kitchen table um, to charge at night, you know, we're going to give you an extra hour of video game time this weekend. You know, the exchange that you create is totally going to depend on your child and your family routines, but that's the idea. It should be a a give and take in order to make this um, less of a contentious issue. And parents can also model the behavior. You could have a family parking lot for nighttime charging of devices that are located outside of everyone's sleeping area. Absolutely. The last universal sleep tip that we're going to give is to establish a really short, mutually agreeable bedtime routine that ends in a consistent bedtime. You know, we tend to focus on this more, again, when kids are younger, just like we were talking about the sleep environment. Um, But oftentimes we kind of lose track of routine as kids get into middle and high school and they're more self-sufficient, but it's still really important. And while it has to evolve over time, those routines are actually really important for everyone, including parents. April, it's important to keep the routine short. 20 to 30 minutes, and it shouldn't include any screens, even for reading. So give us an example routine that you'd recommend for a 14-year-old. Sure. Say um, your 14-year-old is currently going to bed at 11. So at 1030, they say goodnight, park their devices on the family docking station, brush teeth, wash their face or shower, and then read or draw, journal or meditate for the remainder of the time and and then have lights out at 11. That sounds really hard um, with homework demands, especially if kids want to watch some TV or game with friends after their work's done. It's definitely not easy, but even a 10 to 15 minute routine that is consistent every night is really helpful for falling asleep faster, especially if you pair it with a consistent bedtime. We recognize that all of this is easier said than done, but one of the things that kind of helps kids along the path and accepting some of these changes is if they start to see that it's actually helping, right? So that short, consistent, you know, uh, routine with a consistent bedtime, if you can just kind of note again, um, you know, where it's helping your child, they get a sense of, okay, this is worthwhile. It's not taking a ton of time out of my Um, you know, out of my uh, night, um, and I can get it done. So it builds something called self-efficacy, which is really important. That leads us to a more specific set of tips for teens and preteens. I've had many children whom I work with and my own children who tell me that they are night owls and cannot go to bed before midnight. It's really important that as parents, clinicians, and educators, we take a deeper dive into that statement to support children's sleep and availability for learning in the morning. So tell me what you mean by a deeper dive there. Well, sometimes we or our kids make assumptions or statements about sleep that are based on our thoughts and feelings about our sleep and not the actual facts about our sleep routines or sleep duration and quality. For example, when we look at preteens and teens developmentally, we know that they are very focused on peer connections, put a large emphasis on the importance of activities that they enjoy, and sometimes they don't have the best impulse control. So if you boil it down, what you're saying is that um, FOMO or fear of missing out can actually get in the way of sleep. I absolutely am. Many, many students whom I work with have a hard time disengaging from social media, video games, and video chats with friends or even random people at night. 
These outlets for social connection are very important to teens and may seem more important than an 8 a.m. math class. Sure. So how do you deal with those types of issues? Well, we deal with them very gently. First, you want to validate your child's feelings that these activities and connections are important. Then you want to encourage small changes that start to help them feel more confident in disengaging from scrolling, messaging, gaming, etc. So it sounds like we're back to self-efficacy, making small changes, having success, and then taking on some more changes. And all families and teens and preteens are different, but it sounds like you're saying start small. And for example, if a teen normally starts their nighttime routine at midnight, maybe you encourage them to start it at 1145 and try to slowly work towards an earlier start to the routine. Exactly. And getting back to the data piece, actually monitoring or keeping track of when the routine starts, what you're doing during the routine, the time it takes to fall asleep, and the duration of sleep could give you important data. Yeah, just the act of keeping track of these behaviors in a systematic type of way for a couple of weeks can give you all the information that you need to start to adjust sleep routines in small ways that can lead to better sleep. Again, you're focusing on the routines and the behaviors as a parent, you're looking at the duration and the quality of sleep, but you're not emphasizing that to your kids so that they're not getting kind of hung up on those things. And if you want to get really good data, April, you can match up that observational data on sleep routine and sleep duration with data from a sleep tracker that can tell you about sleep cycles and deep sleep. Yeah, um, wearables are a big topic in our field. And a lot of studies show that for certain kids, they're actually really powerful um, agents of change when it comes to sleep. For other kids, they work the opposite way, right? Kids become obsessed with their sleep data. So it's one of those things to really kind of try out depending on you know what kind of kid you have and, and see how it works and see whether or not it's a good tool for your family. In summary, what we're saying is that some of the important recommendations are to stay positive, right? Validate your child's feelings about the importance of their current nighttime activities, encourage small changes to routines, and then as a parent, actually keep good data about what's working and what's not. That's exactly right, April. And what else should be should families be thinking about in terms of improving sleep? I actually think it bears repeating um, that for all ages and diagnoses, getting more exercise during the day is incredibly important to falling asleep faster and getting better quality sleep. We harp on this a lot, but at the end of the day, if you're not tired, you won't fall asleep. And our body's fatigue is really deeply tied to our level of physical activity. One thing I wanna note, because we haven't done this previously, is that most, for most people, that exercise should not take place within two hours of their bedtime um, because it can actually um, excite the system and make it harder to fall asleep. So you want to try to get that exercise a little bit earlier in the day. What about eating before bed? I feel like this is a very controversial um, topic that my friends and I talk about all the time. Yeah, yeah. The, I think this, um, based on the evidence, is a lot more kid-specific. If your child traditionally likes to have a snack or milk, for example, you know, as part of their bedtime routine and it's working, don't mess with it. There's no research to show that that's going to keep them from falling asleep or have um, good quality of sleep. However, if they don't normally do that, most studies do show that eating within two to three hours of bedtime is associated with waking up more at night. Um, and it might also make it take a little bit longer to fall asleep. 
I think the big key is that overall eating a healthy diet has been shown to improve sleep for a variety of reasons. So that's, you know, what you should focus on when it comes to eating, but we're going to tackle that next episode when we start in on nutrition. Yes, April, we're so excited um, next episode to welcome Dr. Rachel Blaine, the founder of Autism Wellness and an associate professor at California State University at Long Beach. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, We're going to have a great discussion about realistic nutrition tips for parents of kids with autism. If your child doesn't have autism, it's still an episode that's going to be worth listening to because a lot of kids with differing uh, mental health diagnoses have issues with food. Um, They have sensory issues sometimes that are comorbid or, or exist alongside their diagnoses and sometimes just kind of struggle with eating behaviors. So she's going to share a lot of wisdom with us about um, her research that can apply to um, kids who are both on and off the autism spectrum. And we promise no extended break this time. Episode seven will be out by next week. Agreed. So we'll be back next episode and we'll be back soon with Dr. Rachel Blaine. If you have any questions you'd like to submit for us to answer in future episodes, you can do so by emailing healthyenoughpodcast at gmail.com. That's healthyenoughpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again. Until next time, be well.